Welcome to season two of the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms to help us improve with each season. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 2021 Next Kid Lit Book Festival. Thank you all for joining this from Manuscript to Marketplace panel as we take a look inside three authors' journeys. And my name is Alyssa Reynoso Morris. I am a picture book author with three upcoming books coming out in 2023 and 2024. And Excited is like an understatement to <laughs> express how I'm feeling right now, moderating this panel to reveal how these amazing authors have gone from having an idea to seeing their books on shelves. So before I introduce our amazing panelists, I want to point your attention to the chat box and please take a moment to read our anti-harassment policy in the chat box. Those are important. And so joining us, we have award-winning picture book author, Anika Algami Denise, and her literary agent, Emily Von Beck from the Folio Junior Agency. We also have New York Times bestselling author, middle grade author, JC Cervantes with her literary agent, um, Holly Root from Root Literary. And we have award-winning author, YA author, Jennifer De Leon, speaking with her editor, Caitlin, from Simon & Schuster. So go ahead and say hi. We're so excited. <laughs> and this event is sponsored by the Authors Guild, which is a professional organization for writers that helps with the business and the legal aspects of publishing. The Authors Guild protects writers' rights to free expression and also fair compensation so that you can focus on writing the wonderful books that we all love. They have lawyers who can review your publishing contracts. They build websites. They have special events that they host for members and a whole slew of other benefits to membership. They are also hosting a free webinar series on the path to publishing. So you can go to their website at authorsguild.org to find out more about them, the work that they do, and their services. Uh, this is a very special event if my excitement isn't evident. <laughs> um, we're gonna explore three different journeys to the path of publishing, specifically picture books, middle grade, and YA. So you're gonna get the whole gambit here. Each interval is going to be 30 minutes long. And then at the end, we're gonna have 20 minutes to answer audience questions. All right, so first we have award-winning picture book author, Anika and her literary agent. Um, Anika, you have written many picture books, including A Girl Named Rosita, The Story of Rita Moreno, Actor, Singer, Dancer, Trailblazer, Planting Stories, The Life of Librarian and Storyteller, Pura Belpre, Lights, Camera, Cam Carmen, and the list goes on. Like I was like, I have lots of your books and then I realized that I didn't have so many and I'm like, oh my God, I have to get them all. 
so thank you so much for being here. And Emily, thank you so much for joining us as well. Good evening. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> so much fun. I'm so excited. The festival is starting. <laughs> and how cool that we get to like kick it off, right? I know. I feel so honored. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Oh, all the pressure. All the pressure. <laughs> so my first question is, um, as a successful picture book author, what would you say makes for a successful picture book? So um, I think successful picture books are books that authentically connect with our kid readers, first and foremost. Um, and that happens, in my mind, one of two ways. Um, they're either saying, I recognize myself in this, or I connect to the emotions of this story, um, even though the character or the situation or the culture is different than mine. And a book can do this, a successful picture book can do this a number of ways it can be done through humor or poignancy or inspiration or information. Um, but for me, it's like that heart is there, that connection. So um, it's it's mainly about heart, humor, connection to my readers. Um, and it can be done a number of different ways. That's how that's what how I measure the success of my own picture books. And those are the picture books that I love and my children love. I love that answer. It's so perfect. And I know for me, as a picture book writer as well, like that was, there's some times where I have like 101 ideas. Yeah. And then when I sit down and start drafting, the one that like makes me cry, that's my metric, <laughs> is the one that I'm like, okay, I'm going to focus on this one. Yeah, or it makes me laugh, you know, or right. it, it taps into that, that universal truth. So... Definitely. Yeah. I wish I was funny. My husband doesn't think I'm funny and I think I've internalized that, but maybe eventually, you know, <laughs> but definitely the emotion. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so when you were writing and you were feeling all the good emotions, when did you know that you were ready to start querying? Well, it's sort of like I have a unique situation in that there was a few years where I published, but I did not have an agent that I was querying. Um, my husband's an illustrator and we did a few books together and those were beautiful books. I'm very proud of them. Um, but there was a moment where I really wanted to find my own voice and my own direction and not, you know, necessarily always be a part of a husband and wife team. I mean, I, I love, we love working together, but you know, he goes and works with other authors and he's very busy. <laughs> It takes a long time. And I was like, I wanna, I, I was ready to to sort of launch and 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 explore different themes. Um, so that was the point where I really decided, okay, I, I need to start querying. And it was it was interesting because um I did not query Emily. <laughs> and no, no, this is Emily represented Christopher, my husband, and I felt like that was theirs. They, I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. That was their relationship. Um, they had just started working together and again, wanting to kind of branch out on my own. Although she was at the top, top of my dream agent list. I was like, okay, that's Chris's agent. I need to, you know, give them the space to work together. And so the way that this happened was a very different kind of 
a story for for finding your agent and i don't know if emily wants to talk about that a little bit but yes 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 <laughs> i'm like chomping at the bit right now like i feel like we're getting such a great like insider because there's so many different ways that this happens right so and it's usually um, the way you per note and pounds are the same you know everybody finds their way down their own way and as nika said i was so fortunate and i'm so fortunate to work with chris um he, I, I have been a huge fan of his work for years he is an incredible artist um and that's why i first knew of nika's work because i was familiar with the pictures that she had written for him. Um, and so the opportunity arose to work with Anika specifically. And I think they jumped the chance. They were, I had seen some sketches of, of a project that Chris was playing around with, and I asked for the words. <laughs> and he said, to Anika. So it works out really well. It's, it's funny, I actually represent a handful of husband and wife, and wife and wife, and like, spouse spouse teams on my list and it sort of feels like you have three different clients i was saying to Nika the other day it's like i have you know chris and his career and the projects that he's working on the writing that he's developing for his own stories as well as illustrated for other artists and we have anika who's you know storytelling and her career has just evolved and blossomed in so many exciting ways and then there's the client that's the anika chris client for the projects that they are developing um, together that sort of feels like a distinct, almost distinct client and personality on, on the list. Yeah, but it's been a feeling. It's been almost a decade now that we've had a great time working together. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't think I've heard fun. that story yet. Like, that's so cool. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned, Anika, that like, you know, you weren't originally going to query Emily. Um, it's really interesting because like, I know when I was like putting together my list of agents to query, I was like so nervous. <laughs> it's like, because it's, you, you hear like such great stories of like people that love their agent and it's like a marriage. And you're just like, I, I would like jump off a cliff if my agent told me to do it, which I would, I would totally jump off a cliff if my agent told me to, because I know that there's going to be a trampoline down there going to catch me. But then you also hear those like, cringy horror stories right where it's like it just, just doesn't mesh um so it's always exciting to hear how people find each other you know like how they find their their agent um so thank you for sharing that and so emily another question for you um what are the main reasons speaking about querying that you reject a query like a query submission um well the truth is i I probably receive a couple hundred queries a week, um, and it's it's a lot, you know. And I'm spending my, you know, the conventional sort of working hours working for the clients that I represent. So, going through queries some of the happens on evenings, it happens on the weekends, and I'm really, I still really think of it as treasure hunting. I'm really looking for that proverbial needle in the haystack. Um, found, I found real gold in there. So it's 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 tough. You have to like look hard. Um, but it can be found. And so that's always so exciting to me, that potential. Um, you know, in terms of why to pass, there are, there's a certain percent of queries that you just, you just know it's not a fit because the aspiring author or the, you know, the potential client is unfamiliar with your list or they send you something that's clearly a not right match for, or you get, you know, odd fonts and weird colors and, 
you know, aspiring picture book authors who've asked their neighbors to do the art, like just weird things where you're like, that's, they're not polished, it's not, it's not ready. But maybe it's more interesting to sort of flip the question on its head and instead of like, why pass, you know, what, did it, what is it that makes me pause on, on a query and why, you know, what, what catches my attention? Um, you know, and that's like a polished query it's a log line, a really clear pitch right up front. Um, it's a query that is not, you know, I like, you know, X meets Y sort of comparisons to help me orient myself, um, except when it's like, this is Harry Potter meets Twilight, you know, then I'm like, ah, red flag, it probably isn't Harry Potter meets Twilight. Um, but I'm really looking very carefully for like a lot of different things, whether it's picture books, after books, middle grade or YA, really looking for writing that is unpronounceable, stories that don't feel derivative. A lot of what I see kind of feels kind of familiar. There's a lot of ingredients that we've, you know, encountered in other stories, which isn't to say like there are going to be universal themes that you come across time and again, but it's those stories that approach from a lateral perspective or, or some sort of vantage point that we haven't experienced before. Um, the other thing is I feel like there's a lot of tough stuff out in our in our world right now. And I, I, I appreciate authors who have the courage to write into the dark and the truth of the dark, but I'm also really looking for light and hope um, and, you know, maybe not so many sharp edges or that there's balance. And um, as Nika referenced a few times, humor, it's so hard to find, and by the way, Alyssa, I think you are funny, so your husband needs to, like, get it. Um, I think books that can make you laugh like a great rom-com, like they're hard to come by, really good ones. So when I find something that makes me laugh, I mean, that's just like the best, the best find ever. That's such a good answer. <laughs> so I'm just going to reiterate a couple things for our authors out there, our writers out there that I heard. Okay. So it needs to be polished. Don't get your neighbor to do the illustrations, right? Like. <laughs> Um, work on those log lines. So Twitter, like I personally love the Twitter competitions, like the, not competitions, but like the, the Twitter events, because I think that's such a great way to practice those log lines. So definitely do that. And stories that are original, balanced with light, hope, and humor. If I can also, I mean, Anika and I, for the case in point, we worked together for a really long time. Um, and these these are really important relationships. You said from there, I mean, it really becomes blending of personal and professional. And you know, a lot of time there has to be a lot of trust between the two. Um, but I also think you know, so I'm personally like hoping to work with someone for a really long time, for for you know years and years. Um, so also someone who has a deep well of ideas rather than just like one story. But if I know that there are others you know, bubbling, that we're going to have opportunities to sort of unearth stories through time. Um, that's really exciting to me, too. Awesome. Yes, definitely. I remember as a picture book author, one, I think one of the differences when we're querying is that we need to have multiple works ready. So like you query one, but I remember my mentor telling me like, have like three polished stories ready to go because when this book is done, like they're expecting you to just keep kicking it in high gear. And I think that was some of the best advice that I have gotten. So for 
for those of you who are interested in writing picture books, make sure you have multiple polished stories. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And now I have a question for, for Anika. Um, so when you're, um, when you're writing, um, can you share a little bit about like what your process is like? Um, I know it's like different for everyone um, and sometimes it depends on the project, but can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I work on fiction and nonfiction picture books and it tends to be pretty different between the two. Um, for nonfiction, for the picture book biographies I've done, I really go into it um, almost like just exploration, deep dive. Let me read everything I can. Let me live in that space of that person or that topic. Um, I'm a total research nerd, so I probably go down the rabbit hole way too far and spend a lot of time because, especially with biography, it's getting my head around what part of this person's story um, is going to be compelling for that kid reader. You know, I think a lot of times with picture book biography, people forget that there's there's going to be kids, this book is going to be in the hands of young readers. So how do you make it relevant and exciting to them? And that takes a lot of digging for me. Um, and finding the hook or the thematic metaphor. And usually it just, the only way to do that is to immerse, you know, like when I was um, researching Rosita, it was like, I watched tons of Academy footage and all her films and, and it was fantastic. It was fun. Um, and I, I really don't cheat myself on that time. I don't rush it. And, and then, you know, I, that's, I take everything and start to see what's rising to the top and what's falling away and where to point the lens of that story. So um, heavy on the research side, spending enough time doing that on the, on the nonfiction books. For fiction, it's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, I can write furiously, you know, when I have an idea and it sort of just pours out of me in a different way. Emily knows this. Sometimes I get really excited and I'm like, <sighs> you know, I'll show it to her. Maybe even show it to her a little too soon, you know, when it's half-baked. Um, I try not to. I really try to, to go the same way as if I were querying her for the first time, just show her something that's really polished. I always know that the writing is up to snuff, but have I fleshed out the idea enough for it to be like a, a well-rounded idea that, that she can go ahead and go forth and pitch with confidence and <laughs> we really know what it's about. Um, yeah, fiction is, is my process is just, you know, when inspiration strikes to just try and get it down. And then, of course, put it aside and have my trusted readers read it and help me polish it as much as possible. But um, it really changes book to book. I wish I could say, here are the steps for you writers, you know, for the pre-published. I think you have to go with what, what feeds you in your process. Not every, no two writers work alike. Um, you can certainly learn by hearing and, and listening to other writers about what their process is, but you know, yours is gonna, is gonna suit you. Um, even to the time of like, when are you the most creative to write? Are you a late night person who can stay up into the night or does your inspiration strike in the morning? Do you need to leave your home to go and write in other places? Or do you, you know, go to the hidey hole and write for hours? Like be true to what your process is and what works for you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate your like transparency and being so just honest, right? And raw. Cause like sometimes like I like I remember as soon as like 
I was able to share that I have upcoming books all of a sudden, like I had all of my primas, you know, and like my cousins coming out the woodwork and be like, how did you do it? And I'm just like, bro, I'm not like some Jedi. <laughs> like I'm not like an expert. Like it's just, and every, every manuscript is different. I mean, I think that's why the word journey is so perfect for them, for it, because it's like everyone goes on something, it's a different trajectory. Um, so in terms of, um, this is a question for both of you, and I did see a comment pop up, so that would be the next question that I asked, but I just wanted to ask this one, um, if you can share some key insights to give to writers, and a question for both of you, so whoever wants to jump at it first. Em, do you want to go? <laughs> I'm super worried now about the audio. Is it really horrible? It's back. It's it's back. Okay. Good. All right. Like, do a sign or something if it. I'll try to find my kids' gaming headphones or something if I need to. Um, I think um, reading, like, read, read everything, read classics, read the New York Times bestseller list, the library, the new picture book selections. You know, just read a ton. Um, I think like putting your butt in the chair every day, writing every day. You know. Um, finding some time to write every day. Um, I think that sometimes aspiring writers become too focused on this idea that the end goal is getting published. And it's it's actually like not the be all and end all. You know, like it, it, it's, it's, it sounds so cheesy, but I think it's really the, the motivation and the inspiration has to be other than I want to be published one day. I think that's gonna end in disappointment. So you have to like reap the rewards along that journey. Um, I would say, you know, not to waste any shots. Like don't send out material that you don't feel is polished to a high shine. It's essentially, it's a relatively small community um, of, of editors and agents. Um, and to really, you know, work on projects before they're submitted. Um, and even then, once you've found your agent, you know, there's going to be, there's rejection is a, is a part of it. So being able to steel yourself against that and being tenacious. And um, we often say this as agents, but it's really true. Like this is such a subjective business and to not lose hope if you strike out because you're good, it's, it's inevitable. And I think that magic you talked about earlier in this conversation, that match between agent and client, editor and author is so important. I have passed on projects that have gone on to be acquired in heated auctions and become movies. I have taken on projects that many before me had passed on and you know, they've gone on to be great success. Like that match is, is just so important. Having someone who really connects you and your work. Thank you, Anika. Oh, um, I'm not muted, right? No. Um, I I think you know, find your comunidad. You know, like it's a long it's a long haul, and um, the way to keep going is to find your people and. Um, you know, immerse yourself in it. You might not be published, but you're you're a reader, and you you're 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 working on your craft. You're celebrating others. You're elevating others. Um, 
you know, and not to do that just so, oh, one day when my book gets published that people will, will do that for me, do it for the love of kid, kid lit and um, being a good global citizen, being, being someone who, who is lifting up others like that all comes back to you, you know, and, but for all, for all the right reasons, you know, so have, whether you're, whether it's Las Musas, you know, for me, it's Las Musas, it's my writing group, it's, it's my agent, it's um, mentees that I've worked with. You know, I, I mentor a lot of writers and they go on to become like my very good friends whose careers I get to to, to sit on the sidelines and watch and cheer for them. And that, that have turned around and helped me, you know, I've been stuck with something. I have a, a mentee from Las Musas actually, and she's all the way in Thailand. <laughs> it was Judith Valdez, she's an author illustrator. And I was stuck with something and I thought, you know, she's just the right person to help me with this. And I sent her some, it was, it's a poetry book and I, I sent her some pieces and, and she gave me this lovely feedback. And so, you know, everyone you meet and every community you're a part of along the way is going to um, be an important part of your journey and always remember that. Always give back, always reach back, and um, that will lift you and carry you no matter what happens in your career. You guys are such pros. Seriously, this is awesome. So many gems in there. I love, you know, the advice of reading every day, writing and creating that habit and the finding your community. Like I was like a little bit like teary eyed here um, because I know for me, just to share a little bit, my journey as a writer, like my total trajectory changed because of Las Musas. I had applied for the mentorship program and it was just like, Fingers crossed. And I still remember to this day, I got that call from my mentor, Donna, and I literally screamed to the point that the following day I lost my voice. It's kind of like my thing. But I was just so excited to have for the first time, like my writing being like seen and validated by someone. So definitely, like, I highly encourage also looking up mentorship programs for those of you that are out there. Thank you for these questions. I have a couple. Um, questions from the audience and we have like 10 more minutes. So I'm super excited about that. Um, so this first question is for you, Anika, from Izeta Thomas. Um, how do you organize your story ideas before writing a picture book, fiction and then nonfiction? So if you can answer for both. Um, for fiction, I, I have like, you know, an idea file, journal. I have folders on my computer and um, I just try and mostly capture things as they come in because as you know, you'll get a great idea and then you don't write it down and it's lost. <clears throat> I'm sort of constantly writing in my brain. <laughs> so I have to keep, keep track of that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who I'm sort I, I have a lot of ideas brewing, but when I'm, I very much focus on one at a time. Like I give that, I give that my, my everything, you know, and I, I write and rewrite, um, but I definitely do go back and say, okay, well, this this is one that's a little shinier. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that to the front, and the others are on the back burner. So I just try and organize that. Um, for nonfiction, it's almost more important because when <laughs> to stay organized because um, the research process always I always find an idea for the next book when I'm researching the book that I'm in, and so always I'm like oh okay and I have to like I have to 
turn my head back towards what I'm doing, but I absolutely keep good track of um, ideas and people and things and topics that I discover in, in my research. And I've heard that from other um, authors who write nonfiction that frequently they find their next book idea doing doing the research for the current one. So yeah, just keep keep it in Evernote or you know, maybe you write things down, maybe you're a handwriter. I always was, and I have switched recently to, <laughs> to digital because it's nice to be able to access that from all my devices. Um, so yeah, whatever, whatever form of organization suits you, definitely do that because then you'll also use it. If you publish a nonfiction book and then you go on to do school visits, all of that organized research and all of those little nuggets that you found can come out in other ways, even if they don't make it into the book. Um, they can be used later for other things. So, Yvette, that, did that answer your question? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. I love that. I know for me, like Google Docs is my best friend because yeah. I love how searchable it is. Yes. But when I'm, my first draft is always on paper. Like as you guys are talking, I'm taking notes. I'm like writing yeah. down these gems. Just, I think it's a generational thing. Like for me, like I wrote everything down, but then I transcribe it and I love that I can like, search it and then save every catalog every single draft i keep yes. all of my drafts that yeah because sometimes you want to go back to things or you pull something from one project to another yeah it's, yep. it's never your form of organization even just bookmarking having a bookmarks tab um for different projects i do that as well just helps me quickly toggle between research and ideas and you know I'm not by nature I'm not organized so I have to I have to put systems in place so I'm totally honest <laughs> you know I'm, I'm not my husband is a list maker I'm not <laughs> so whatever I don't know I'll take tips from all of you how do you guys stay organized with your ideas I'd love to know <laughs> you heard it pop it in the chat share how, <laughs> how you stay organized we're, we're all ears we're happy to hear it yeah uh, my husband jokes with me because like I'm really organized with my documents, but then you like come into our house and he's just like, so <laughs> it's like, it, it, it doesn't always translate, but it I've gotten better. I've gotten yeah, I think, I think creative people tend to, you know, think more circularly. So that's we have one more, um, another um, audience question. And this one is for you, Emily. Um, as someone who wants to write about social justice issues, what advice do you have to connect with readers so it doesn't feel heavy or like a downer? So Anika, you can also feel free to chime in after, but I remember hearing this from agents that it's like, don't be preachy. So I think your perspective on this would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's essential is, is that it doesn't feel like, you know, coming from on high or, you know, staring down sort of the nose and trying to be sort of overtly teaching lessons. Um, I think it's about writing honestly and and have respecting your reader, um, regardless of their age, you know, um, and, and being able to write into the truth. I think though it's also about the nuance of, you know, the different, the different angles, the the light against the, you know, dark. Um, but I think it's really about having that courage to write truthfully and not to belittle your audience because you think they're, you know, because they're young, but they're younger, they're young people. Um, you know, kids can handle a lot, but they can also really detect 
when something doesn't ring true or doesn't feel authentic in your experience. I think that's why the show, you know, that that one show of like the kids say the darnest things or something like that was like such a hit, right? Because kids have no filter. They're gonna lay it on you real thick. Um, so I, I think that's that's really great advice. Anika, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I think that again, you find whatever way in for what's relevant to for social justice issues, what's relevant to a, a, your child reader's um, experience. Remember that you're, you're, yes, you know, there are parents and gatekeepers who are reading your book, but at the end of the day, the, the kid reader is your audience. And um, kids are sophisticated, they're savvy, they're aware, they're, they're, they're so much more aware of social justice issues than I feel like I was as a kid. Um, that's a blessing in a way. It makes your job a little bit easier mm -hmm. because you can talk to them about these things and they are hearing about them from in school and their friends and you just have to find like the way that it's relevant to their to their lives and always leave them with some hope and inspiration you know i think you talk about tough things in picture grade picture book middle grade um as long as there's hope there and sort of a call to action then you can dig into some pretty tough stuff i love that and i, I i'm gonna just kind of hit like highlight what you just said in terms of the call to action. Mm -hmm. um, I, in my day job, I work in like a political office and we're always constantly working with constituents and people that need help, right? Um, the main thing that, like the main component of my job is leaving people with more information and resources than they came in. But most importantly, it's that hope, right? And whenever you're trying to explain something to, to someone, I know for me, it's like the reason why sometimes you leave feeling helpless is because you know all this information and all of these facts that can be really daunting, but then you don't know what to do with it, right? So that call to action is super, super, super important. When you're writing something, one of the questions that popped in the chat um, by Yolimari Garcia is, can you give an example of something that's preachy? I think when something can be preachy is, in my opinion, when you're explaining a problem and it's just doesn't leave a, so what's next? What can you do? How, how can you actually like make an impact and what's your little piece of the puzzle? So um, that call to action is super important, making it clear and making it, um, transparent for your readers um and we have three more two more minutes left before um the next panel so if anyone has anything else to to share um if anyone wants to give any other pop in any other questions here's your time before we move to our next panelist can i say anything um, yes so um my next picture book biography is about is called Phenomenal AOC, um, and it's about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the <laughs> America's youngest congresswoman. And uh, you know, obviously, this book touches on some social justice issues, <clears throat> and it was really interesting because what we wanted to do with that book was it's called The Roots and Rise of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and it is about her, the, the making of her, 
but it's also about what she's been able to, what, what, no matter what you think of her politics aside, you know, I happen to love them, <laughs> but, um, you know, it is about um, what she's been able to accomplish. And it's about her as an example for kids of youth movements. So we really put that into the book, right? So that question that came up about like, how do you not be preachy? You know, we, this is, this whole story is to kind of say, look what she has accomplished. Here's what you can do. It's about inspiring. So um, I, I think that you have to have, it's, it's like a lighter touch, <laughs> um, but always, like you said, leave them with that call to action. So I we just went through this on a book. So I wanted to just give that as an example. Um, and very excited. The illustrator is Loris Lora and it comes out in fall of 2022. Perfect. Yay. What a great way to close it off. And I'm yeah. like, I can't believe I didn't ask about it, but no, that's okay. I slid it in. Tidbit, <laughs> in one of my books, I also mentioned AOC. So we might have to have like a little. That's AOC right. Party. You're from, you grew up in the Bronx? The Bronx. Yeah. yeah, the Bronx. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so cool. So cool. <laughs> so buy the book, everyone. Pre order. Pre order sales are super important. Thank you both so much for your time and your insights. Like I learned a ton. I was taking notes. Um, my teacher will be proud, you know. Um, and I'm so excited to introduce the next panel. Thank you both again Thank so you. much. All right. And thank you all for your questions. These questions are awesome. Keep them coming. Um, so now we have New York Times bestselling middle grade author, J.C. Cervantes with her literary agent, um, Holly Root from Root Literary. And so Jen is a New York Times bestselling author. I know I said that, but I said it twice because it's like, OMG, um, <laughs> of books for children and young adults. Her books have appeared on national lists, including American Bookseller Association, New Voices, Barnes and Noble's Best Young Reader Books, and Amazon's Best Books of the Month. She has earned multiple awards and recognitions, including the New Mexico Book Award and the Zia Book Award. So this is such a privilege, such an honor. Um, and thank you so much for both of you for joining us. Um, I'll be here. I'm gonna launch into my first question, which is as a successful middle grade, and young adult author, what would you say makes a successful kid lit novel? That's a really big question. And I, I think that, you know, everyone is going to answer that differently. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's about connection. I think that it is about immersing yourself in the story and in a way that allows you to have that moment of connection, whether it is fear reading horror or intrigue reading a thriller or a broken heart reading romance. I think we all want to feel something. I think especially given the last couple of years that we've all gone through. Um, and so it, to me, it does I don't think it's about age category. And I know that that's not a very formulaic response. I know a lot of times aspiring writers want the thing in the bottle and I don't have it. I wish I did. Um, I'm sure Holly wishes she did too. It's like, it's like editors always say, and agents always say, well, we know it when we see it. And so I, that's what I think. I mean, think about the way we all read, you know, I know that I want to fall into 
um, a propulsive book that just carries me away um, in a way that feels meaningful and that I can just kind of escape for a bit. So ultimately connection. I like that connection. I want to write middle grade. So I'm like literally like writing down everything. It's such a fun age category to write for. So much fun. <laughs> and I think I, I've read a lot of middle grade and I didn't realize that some of my favorite books, even as an adult, were middle grade. Like as a reader, I didn't know the categories and like, you know, when I was a, a student, I didn't know. But then I like going back, finding out that some of like my favorite books of all time, when people ask you like, what are your favorite books? And I'm like, why are you so mean to me? Why are you asking me this question and asking me to pick favorites? Yeah. But fine, if I'm on the spot, I'll pick a few. And then later on finding out that they're all, that most of them are middle grade. So, um, yeah, and I think, I think there's something really I think that is part of the takeaway of what makes for a really impactful middle grade novel is the ones that stick with a lot of people. I think they um, they are perfectly calibrated to hit at an age where kids are really forming a sense of themselves and the world around them. And I think the ones that tend to stand out and make that deep connection with lots of readers are the ones that have a real sort of respect for the kid reader and an understanding that that kid who's reading it is the oldest they've ever been. And so to them, they're like, I know so much. I mean, <laughs> I'm so much smarter than when I was eight because now I am 10. Um, and it's true. They do every, every single day. They're learning and adding to. And I think the books that really pop are the ones that have that just founded in deep respect for the audience and for the reader. Oh, gems. I'm like sitting here feeling like I'm at a poetry contest. <laughs> like, cause just like snapping my fingers all day. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, so my next question is, when did you know that you were ready to query agents and why did you query Holly? Huh. I don't know that I was ready. Um... I kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Um, so just to give a little bit of perspective, I was coming off of um, another agent relationship and I had terminated that, that relationship. We stayed you know, perfectly cordial with each other. But part of that was because I had published one book and I knew what I was looking for. And I was much clearer in the process where when I was just beginning, I thought, well, you just query everybody and whoever responds to you is, is who you go with. And so the second time around, I did a lot of research and I, I knew for me that I wanted someone who was going to be very editorial. I knew I wanted someone who wanted my career. I knew I wanted someone who's going to help me grow as a writer and ultimately be a really good human, someone that I trusted and wanted to be in business with. And so I did a lot of stocking of agents and believe it or not, my list was really short and Holly was my number one. And that is the honest truth. Um, and I even told her that when I got the call and she said, do you want time to think about it? I said, no, 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 no. You are my number one choice. Let's do this. Um, and so I think ultimately, you know, I, I looked at her list. I really respected a lot of authors on her list. Um, I think one of the other things too is going through acknowledgements and seeing what people say about the agents. We all thank our agents and acknowledgements. That's a great place. And I really liked her online presence. And ultimately, I think one of the things that really stood out for me was she did an interview. Holly, I don't know if you remember this, but it was forever ago. It was probably, I think we've been together 10 years. So this is at least 10 years ago. And she gave an interview and it was really smart and it was really savvy and it felt really authentic to me. 
And she talked about the comparison game that we artists put ourselves through, that we humans put ourselves through, right? And she said, and I don't know if this is the exact quote, but something along the lines of um, keep your eyes on your own paper. And that really resonated with me in a deep way because I thought, oh, we've got an energetic connection here. Like we subscribe to the same belief system. I think we're going to get along great. This is going to be a great match. And I know that, that um, Emily and Anika talked about that idea of matching. And I think that that's really, really important that, you know, it's not just, I mean, for me, it's not just, oh, this is a business relationship. That's it. You know, there's so many other nuances that come into play that um, I think you really need to have someone like Holly in your corner. So, so that's why I decided, and I've never looked back. I love this love. <laughs> it's so exciting to hear about. And thank you for sharing that, you know, Holly wasn't your first agent. I think that's really important to share because a lot of, like I've heard of a lot of authors say it's better to be unrepresented than represented right. by a True. bad agent or yeah. not necessarily a bad agent, but just an agent that doesn't suit you. And that isn't the appropriate cheerleader for your work. Right. So mm -hmm. even though getting that, like that breakup or divorce, whatever you want to call it can be really traumatizing to go back into the query trenches. I'm so glad that you shared that because it really shows that the right pair is out there. And you just have to have the courage to just know what is the best thing for your work and your career and then doing your research, right? Yeah, so for, yeah. for everything, you have to do research. When you're writing your manuscript, you do research. When you're querying agents, you need to do research. And when you're in the submission process, you should also be doing research. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. So like, after hearing all that love, Holly, like, how do you feel? <laughs> like, can you tell I us mean, a little bit about like the call and how you, how you, how it all like felt and how you knew that you guys would be like a good pair? This, I mean, this is, this is when it's like working with Jen. I'm the luckiest. Um, it, I remember, I mean, again, it's been, the, the sands of time have washed <laughs> over all of our brains um, since then, but I do distinctly remember that the manuscript I signed Jen for, which is not the first thing we sold, um, just spoke, like, I, I think all of us who are adults working in this space sort of have like an inner kid reader that certain books are just like, like right to the heart. Um, and that book just like got me. Um, and so I felt pretty confident that we would be on a wavelength because it got me in a way that wasn't just like, oh, I like, I like the plot, I like the words, I like the imagery. It got me on like a heart level. And I find that when that happens, it is generally, it's, it would be surprising to have that deep of a sensation and to not be in some way simpatico. Um, so I did go in expecting that like this could be really good um, and then just found that it was so incredibly easy to talk with Jen and to, you know, a lot of a lot of the work of the agent author partnership is frankly like kind of dreary, like day to day, like moving things along. How are we going to do this? What do you, you know, do you have that? I've got this. What do you want to do now? OK, we had a setback. OK, we had a huge success. Like 
having someone that you can talk to really well in all of those situations um, is is powerful. And I also got a sense that she had a really strong sense of herself as a creator and a, as a person um, and a good business sense and a good sort of like very um, practical, um, like let's do this, let's roll up our sleeves, hard work, get it done, um, while still having a balance around being a human so that you have a protection for that place where the deep heart stuff comes from. So all of those things are what stick out to me that made me think, yes, <laughs> let's let's do this. And here okay. we are. I, I, is it, t it might be 10, maybe 10 years. Yeah. I think it's 10 years, Holly. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I've been with my husband for 11 years and it's just, sometimes it just feels like, oh my God. But most, most days it's like, yay, like I choose you every day. So it's, it's nice to hear that. And um, now that we know what you gravitate toward, Holly, can you share what you, like reasons why you would reject a query submission? Um, I mean, aside from just sort of the basic, like, I don't do this. I think one of the things that's really hard, I think, for um, authors on the other side of the desk is to understand just how little it is a value judgment in like 90% of situations. I, and I'm speaking here mostly for, you know, I'm, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> as um, evidenced by, you know, having clients I've worked with for a decade plus. Um, so my list is fairly mature, shall we say. Um, so I'm not necessarily looking to add just a million new projects every year. I'm not in growth mode in the same way. But for the most part, when I say no to something, it's not that there's anything wrong with it or that I think the book is bad in any way. I mean, Emily mentioned this, that, you know, we've we have all said no to things that then are huge successes for other agents. And I think by and large, it's hard sometimes for people to understand just how much we don't feel bad about that. Like, we're like, yay, <laughs> that's great. Um, I really do tend to come at this from a place of abundance and belief that like there is lots of success for everybody and plenty to go around. And that if I am not, I, I'm not doing someone a service by taking on too many things, so I do tend to be, particularly right now, I also run a company, and so that's a lot of stuff too. Um, so I have not been taking on a ton. So when I pass on something, it is virtually never because I think the book is not good. <laughs> like, it is entirely about, um, can I do justice to this book? Does it fill a niche in my list? Does it, you know, does it speak to me in this weird heart way that like, how could you possibly know? Um, that something would would connect in that way. So I really do encourage people to cast a wide um, a wide but fine net. Like make sure you're you are submitting to really top notch people. But I would say like look at you know I have some really great colleagues who are actively list building. Look at like a range of folks who are at different levels um, and don't not try somebody just because they're you know maybe more senior or own a company or whatever. Like try people because you just never know. But try not to take those responses as referendums because again nine out of ten times it is so much more to do with me than to do with the material and i really am hoping that i will see that book sell and we do that all the time at the agency we have a little slack channel where we'll pop in and be like did you see that this book sold and someone will be like i loved that i'm so glad for them and these are not people we represent like they're 
just books in the world and we're happy for them. Um, so it really is so much more about what's going on for an individual agent's list and you know what we're looking for. I will say I am a novelty creature. So there are things like that there my colleagues sometimes have to like slap me out of the submission inbox because I'll be like, oh, this one sounds good. And they're like, stop. Like, I know. I'm just someone make sure you read it. Um, because I, I do love that sense of discovery. So I I will often go in there too and match make. So if I'm in a spot where I'm not meant to be taking on a lot of things, um, I will sometimes go in and be like pass to a colleague too. So I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> it totally does. And even beyond, I, I think you did such a great job at like, you know, like that Wizard of Oz moment where you reveal what's behind the curtain and you gave us a lot of really great like industry insights. Um, just nerds. It's just nerds behind the curtain. I, I love it though, because as a like as a fellow nerd, like it's because you're when you write, you're like hopefully burying your soul into it. So um sharing that it's not personal right like it's mostly what's already on the list and what you have a bandwidth for it's just nice to hear you know um and also i think it's important because like this industry is so competitive like i remember the first time i read that only one percent of submitted manuscripts are actually published and like feeling like omg right like <laughs> that like omg moment um, but then also feeling like, okay, so now I really have to get my story out there because that means like there's fewer people like striving, you know, like these types of stories need to be told. And I love what you specifically had said before about the strong sense of self as a creator, right? How JC, you have that, you're writing from like that authentic place. And I think that's a theme that we hear here. Anika mentioned that we're talking about that here. So when you're writing, write for, from that authentic self, like place of self, I usually, like when I write, I think about like little Alyssa, seven-year-old Alyssa. When I wrote my first book, and I think I actually have it like somewhere here. I like keep it in like my little stash of like the first book that I wrote. And it's like, I like look at it sometimes and I'm like, okay, so I'm writing for you for seven-year-old Alyssa who like didn't see enough books about these topics, right? That didn't see her food and her culture and like the things that brought her joy on the page. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so um, I, I can't even wrap my head around how many books you have coming up, JC. <laughs> like I know you have um the lord of nights flirting with fate and fractured path all coming out in 2022 and i was just like omg so can you talk a little bit about each book i know pitching our books is not always the funnest thing but talk a little bit about it holly feel free to jump in and like help her out right like extend that hand and then if you don't mind also sharing how you juggle multiple deadlines. Because to me, that's just like, oh my gosh, how do how do you have these many books coming out at once? So I, I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm geeking out, sorry. So you're on mute. Well, you know. Um, so the first book that's coming out in April of 2022 is Flirting with Fate. It's my YA debut. 
Um, it's coming out with Razorbill. Super excited about it. It was an idea that sprang to mind right about when COVID hit. I was actually going to turn to a darker middle grade. And in typical fashion, I'll send Holly a few ideas, just a short paragraph. What do you think? She's a great strategist. And she actually gave the green light on the dark end, what ended up being flirting with fate. And I just felt like my heart needed to be in this world of this beautiful Mexican family in Los Angeles and all the glitz and the glamour and the fun and the sisterhood and the love. And so I started to write that book. And it really felt like, even though my goal was to write it toward publication, it really felt like it was something like balm for my soul. And I love that book. So it is about Ava Granados, 17 years old. And she comes from a mystical family. The women in her family have this amazing ability to pass on blessings on their deathbeds to their descendants, to their female descendants. And on one evening in particular, her grandmother's on her deathbed and Ava Granados misses the blessing by mere minutes. And she is devastated. She's even more devastated when she finds out that her sisters got their blessings and her blessing went somewhere else. And she now has to retrieve it in a certain amount of time, or there'll be catastrophic consequences for her grandmother's ghost, as well as this continued ability for the women in her family to pass on the blessings. So to me, ultimately, the book is about surrender. It's about love and joy. It's about lives forgotten. And it takes a very long view of fate. And I did that intentionally. So that is that particular book. Um, did you want to do each one? Or how did you want to structure that? Yeah, whatever you want, whatever you feel comfortable. Or like, let Holly jump in. Like, you know, you're, you're, doing you're doing amazing. You're doing amazing. You're killing it. Well, I love so that. Good. I really do. I, I wish I could dive into the pages and live with that family. Um, and then after that, I believe in July is Fractured Path. And that is part of the Mirror Quartet. And that was a really fun project. That was a project that I got to coordinate with three other authors. Julie Dow wrote the first book that came out last year. Danielle Clayton's Shattered Midnight comes out next month. And my book, Fractured Path, comes out in July. And I believe Elle McKinney's comes out in 2023. Um, and that was a lot of fun just to coordinate with what they were doing because it basically follows this family curse from 1800s Germany. And so I had the immense privilege of working in 1965 San Francisco. And the character that I created, like Estancia, is um, she is a budding artist. She is going through a lot in terms of what it means to be a young woman in the 1960s. What does her future look like because of that from socioeconomic status, from politics, from feminism, you know, all of that's coming to, head, to a head and she's exploring that. But in on top of that, the backdrop is that she is knows that she comes from a magical family and she is set forth to track down magical art, a magical artifact following these clues. And she has to do this in the presence of a dark curse. And it's, it's hard to talk about that book without spoilers. And so I, I'm very cautious about the things that I say because it is very much a scavenger hunt. And there's a lot of clues. So if I spill the wrong artifact, um, it ruins it. And so that that book is a lot darker. Um, loved writing it. There are some really dark, haunting scenes in it that just pushed me in a new direction as a writer. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that I could 
that I could do it. I was scared sometimes <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, but it came together beautifully and my editor's sensational. So it, it all worked out. And then the last book that's coming out in the fall um, in October is The Lords of Night. My favorite shadow bruja, Renata Santiago. It is a spinoff series from the Stormrunner. She appeared, if anyone out there has read the trilogy, she appeared on the page, fully grown this NASA space alien loving creature that ends up having all these incredible abilities and powers. And you wouldn't know because she's the most down to earth, loving, highly intellectual kid. And I knew when I finished Shadow Crosser, this kid has to have her own. I mean, she just has to, she has to have her own story. And so she is facing the um, Aztec Lords of Night. And what's interesting about the book, what I love about the book is in this showdown, she actually questions her own existence, where she comes from, who she is, and it's not what the reader thinks. Oh man. <laughs> I'm and like, I can't even. <laughs> Lori is like goddess material and she's, oh my gosh, I've learned so much about writing because of her. We've worked on four books now together. And she, I remember she had a comment, I think in an email that said something like, you have daggered my heart because of the way the book ends. And I'm like, yes, yes. That, right, that's the goal, right? <laughs> that's the connection I wanted. Yeah, so those are the three. Awesome. Oh my goodness. And so before we have a couple more minutes left, so I want to jump on some audience questions, which we're really excited about. Um, so both um, Mira and JC mentioned that the book they landed their agent with is not the book that's sold. At what point do you transition to another project? I think that's a great question because you are like the juggle projects queen up in here. So like, have at it. <laughs> well, Holly, you want to take that one? Because I guess we kind of decided on that together, but that's probably a better question for Holly. Yeah, I mean, I think it it totally depends on why something didn't land um, and on the client and kind of what they want to do um, and what they have waiting in the wings. So when I have somebody who I know is fast and has a lot of ideas and you know, there's other projects that are exciting and it feels like maybe we just, you know, sometimes like reasons that a book might not sell, you could take it out and you find out, oh no, you know, there's two comps that we didn't know about because they hadn't even been announced yet that are like working in a really similar space. Like it's, it would be awkward for this book to coexist with them and that's going to close some doors and then we just didn't connect. You know, there's always different reasons that something might not be right for the market. Um, but the good thing about those submissions is they do make you fans. Like there are people who remember you on subsequent submissions who are like, oh, I love that person. Like their writing is so great. I really wanted to make it work on that book. And so then when you have the next thing, you're able to sort of go in and you've got the beginnings of a relationship sometimes. Um, and a lot of that comes down to my relationship with the editors and my sense of, um, you know, what they're, pass kind of meant some passes are just passes um, but sometimes passes come with like a phone call <laughs> it's like I really didn't want to say no to this but I had to and I'm so sad um so you just kind of look at the, the lay of the land sometimes you've just exhausted all your options and so you pivot and you try again um and I find that th that is incredibly common um for that has happened for a lot of my my clients and 
I tend to work with folks who do have a lot of ideas and a lot of capabilities and a lot of categories. Um, and so I tend to be really game and just kind of roll with it. But it's it, it's a hard thing for authors, but to us, it's a Tuesday. So I don't feel like there's any shame or sad. I mean, there's sadness in that like you worked hard on something and you love it and I love it or I wouldn't have taken it out. Um, but there's no shame. It's just part of the process and part of the the getting to that match. Um, and sometimes you'll have a book that works beautifully as a book too, and it doesn't work as a debut. Um, and so nothing is ever really wasted. It all kind of gets you where you're going. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And I think it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about. Of that relationship is so important because it sounds like you made that decision together. So if you don't feel comfortable talking to your agent about these things, then it, it might be a bit more challenging. So thank you for sharing that. And then we have another question from the audience um, from Christina Trujillo. Um, how do you approach the difference between YA and middle grade? And do you feel like that process was very different between the two categories? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. I, um, you know, it's interesting. So. I have never set out in my career to say, okay, now I want to write away. Now I want to write a middle grade. Now I want to write, you know, adult. Now I want, I just, it's whatever story comes to me that is demanding to be told. And I generally know when I sit down and I start writing longhand, typically when an idea comes, because the first scene always comes to me always. And you know, it's never, it never changes. It never gets edited out. It always stays the same. And I always know what the end is going to be. You know, I finally, I eventually get there. Um, and so for me, it really is an intuitive process. I mean, I wish that I could say, well, you know, this is very, this absolutely categorizes it as white and this absolutely categorizes, categorizes it as MG. Um, but it really becomes intuitive and I let my characters take over. And so as strange as it sounds, they, um, they have their own voices. They talk to me at night. I'll be at dinner with my husband and he'll say, you're not here with me. You're listening to Ren. And I'll say, I am. Um, because they're always with me. And so whatever it is that they want to say is what I, I honor that. And it's usually when I get out of my own way and I really let the muses play and I don't try to control. And I know that sounds off, but it's, it's the only way that I can describe it. And so when I set out to write um, Flirting with Fate, I did not say to Holly, hey, I think that I'm going to write a young adult it was more along the lines of, I saw this grandmother on her deathbed. I knew this, I got to know this family in my mind and heart. And that's how it came out. And I don't think it would have worked as a middle grade. So um, I think trust the process, you know, as a lot of, a lot of aspiring writers will ask me questions like that. And it's, it takes a long time. It really does. I'm working on, I think my ninth or 10th published book right now. And I remember today I was so excited because it felt like the first time I wrote a scene and I trusted it. I didn't feel like, oh gosh, I've got to show this to the editor. I've got to show it to Holly. I've got to show it to a reader. I just knew that it's exactly what the story needed. And before I would have questioned that. So yeah, trust your gut. And on that note, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So, so fun. much. I mean, this was so informative. I learned so much um, and I'm just really excited for the Q&A at the end. Don't forget guys, if I didn't catch your questions, please feel free to put them in the chat 
later on because we're going to have a 20 minute Q&A at the end. Um, thank you both again so much. Buy the books, like seriously, like come on, <laughs> this, this is amazing. Um, and any final thoughts or good? Can I just say just one thing super quick? Yeah. I, I think oftentimes we see highlight reels and we see only the success. And we're like, oh my gosh, JC has you know a billion books coming out in the next couple of years. I faced lots of rejection and Holly knows it. <laughs> and Holly had to, you know, support my neurosis and she was so there for me emotionally and stuck it out with me. And, you know, I don't, I, I think it's really important to be transparent in that regard. And that if you stick it with it and you keep telling the stories you want to tell that you will find a reader. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're amazing. Both thank of you. you. Thank you. And now we're going to move on to our third and final panel. Um, we are, hi guys, <laughs> can you tell I'm excited? Um, so we have award-winning YA author, Jennifer De Leon and her editor, Caitlin from Simon & Schuster. Um, Jennifer De Leon is the author of YA novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From. Did I say it okay? Did I have yes. enough staff there? <laughs> um, and was, which was a Junior Library Guild selection and is the Juniper Award winning essay um, collection, um, White Space Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing with UMass Press. Um, and her next YA novel is Maya, which is releasing in 2022. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time, for joining us, for your insight. Can you like flash the cover? I'm obsessed with your cover of your book. Ah, thank you. Yeah. It's like Ooh. stunning. Oh my gosh, thank you. I had to, you know, represent with flowers. And I see. Yeah. I love the combination right there. It was so <laughs> intentional. And you're matching too, Caitlin, with like your background. I love it. I love it. Yeah. This is planned. This is totally orchestrated, guys. Wallpaper the whole room to match Jen's cover. I love it. I love it. These are everything. <laughs> this is great. So I'm going to launch into my first question, um, which is, can you tell us a little bit about Don't Ask Me Where I'm From? Yes. Uh, so Don't Ask Me Where I'm From tells the story of 15-year-old Liliana Cruz. She is struggling to fit in at her new high school. She's part of a desegregation program called METCO. She's got boy drama, little brother drama, best friend drama, mom drama. All the while her father is missing, but she realizes early on in the book, he's not really missing. He's been deported to Guatemala. And up until this moment, she had no idea that her parents uh, were undocumented. So it kind of cracks open her world and she sets off on a path to learn more about where he is and, and what's going to happen. Um, and then someone posts a meme of her face on a piñata at school and with the words, go back where you're from. And it goes viral, it sets off a chain of um, events at school and she has to really decide whether to speak up or, or stay silent. So I won't tell you what happens, but that's the, that's the story. Perfect. You're a pro. You've clearly done this before. <laughs> I love that you highlighted so many important themes there. Um, and all the drama. I mean, we love all the drama. So I'm ready for it. If you haven't read it, get on that. Um, so based on 
like what you write, what do you think are key elements that make a YA just like scream, this is it, like this is going to captivate someone, right? Like I'm writing this for my target audience. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I know um, Caitlin has a lot more expertise than I do, but um, I will say this is the book that I needed as a young person. Um, it's like you were sharing earlier, Alyssa, like the seven-year-old and you, like what, what does she want to read? What books did she want on her shelf? And so this for me is that is that book. It's also the book I really wanted to share with my students. I was a public school teacher um, for over 10 years um, from seventh grade through high school, um, English teacher. And I just longed for a book like this where I could you know, hand it to my students with the Latina on the cover and with hoop earrings and you know, being so unapologetically herself, even if she's still trying to figure out who that is. And I think we've all heard that quote by now by Toni Morrison, right? That if there's a book you wanna read in the world, but it hasn't been written yet, then you need to be the one to write it. So again, that's that's this book for me, but I love stories with um, a strong character, right? Heroine, um, of course, a desire, conflict, the quest, all of that, but the voice. I really love characters with strong voices and when I was doing my research for different agents and editors, I remember reading an interview that Caitlin gave where, um, Caitlin, you wrote about the, the power of voice and how you're really like drawn to voice when you're reading manuscripts. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I just felt like maybe, maybe we can have this connection. And so I was thrilled when, when we ended up working together because I just felt like we already had those common interests. Awesome, awesome. Okay, like, do you mind also answering that question? Like, I'm sure you get hundreds of submissions, but like, what screams this needs to get published? This needs to be in the hands of readers, like yesterday. Jen, Jen knows me so well. For me, it's it's ninety percent voice. Um, if there, if a, if if the voice of a manuscript feels unique to anything I've read before, it, it can go in any direction. It can be a quiet voice or a loud voice or an angry voice. I have a, I have a, a manuscript I'm publishing right now. The first 10 pages, I just wanted to whack that character. I was so mad at him, but the voice caught me. Um, and, and so voice speaks to me incredibly. If the voice isn't there, I think it's because I can help a lot with the arc of the story. I can tell you the mother doesn't really need to be in here. I can say this character's too overbearing and not giving enough light to this other character, but I cannot create voice. And that's what I bow down to in regards to my authors is that's what they provide that no one else can do. No one else can rep replicate. It's unique to each person. And when they do it well, to me, it becomes a song that I can't get out of my head, except it's a book that I then have to publish. I love that, love that. Do you mind if we actually like take some time to unpack voice? Cause I, I know like that's the, I think a lot of my friends and like my query, um, my like critique groups, like that's sometimes one of the most glaring things that they see when they're like either getting rejected or when like 
their agent is interested and wants to see more of their stuff. Um, and I still struggle to this day to try to like, kind of like unpack it and define what it is. So um, not to put you guys on blast, but to kind of <laughs> like yeah. what makes voice, a, like a good voice strong. Yeah, I mean, I I will tell you my story with this book in regards to voice, okay? I, I, I don't know if Caitlin even knows this, but I worked on another novel um, for seven years um, before I even had an agent, anything. And I, I wrote this book like I thought I should be writing it. I wrote it in a voice that I thought was quote unquote literary, that was um, what a writer might sound like. And what I mean is I was trying to write like a dead white man. And I wrote in the vein of, or I was trying to anyway, James Salter, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Richard Yates, Raymond Carver. You know, I was just trying really hard because I wanted to be a writer so badly. And I thought, well, this is how you do it. Um, and I failed <laughs> at that time. And what's interesting is that once I started writing, don't ask me where I'm from, I originally had it in the third person and I had it set in the 90s because that's when I was a teenager. So um, naturally that's where I, what I was leaning towards. But I went to a conference. I actually went to the Coeli um, Color of Children's Literature Conference, which is amazing. And there was kind of a setup where it was like kind of like speed dating and you met with editors and agents for like 10 minutes at a time. And this one editor said, have you considered writing this in the first person and making it contemporary? And I thought, no, and no, <laughs> I can't write contemporary YA. Like, I don't know what a teenager sounds like nowadays. Like that would be crazy. And then I stopped and realized I've been teaching in urban public schools for over 10 years. Like I have a hundred kids on my roster on a given year. I can't get their voice out of my ear most days. Um, so then I thought, let me try it. And I'll tell you once the main character, Liliana, took the mic, she did not let go. She just poured out this, this sassy voice. And I just, like JC was saying earlier, I just kind of listened to her and I let her take up that space. I had written her character in short stories before, but they had never been published. I would get um, nice rejections from editors at literary magazines we love your writing, this is great, it's just not for us, but keep sending us your work. And I realized later on, hindsight is twenty twenty. it's because I was writing YA. I just didn't know it. Um, I didn't know much about this category and I didn't know that many literary magazines don't publish YA. So I just thought the universe was saying, you know what, this story isn't valid, you're not a good enough writer. That was a little voice on one shoulder, but over time I have learned to mute that little voice and listen to the other one that's saying like, you got this. People are publishing books left and right. Why can't you? You have to work hard, put some heart, put some hustle and keep it moving. So that's my long answer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just think that, I mean, there's so much to say about voice. Um, on a practical level, Caitlin has helped me so much. I mean, Caitlin is brilliant and, and thoughtful but also a good um, teacher of writing in your editorial letters. You know, you really kind of help 
me with that specific chapter or scene, but then you help me bring those lenses to new scenes that I write or new projects. And, um, and that helps tremendously. When is the character, when is the narrator being authorial or when it's the writing authorial? Like when am I coming in as a teacher, a mother, an auntie, you know, all these things. Um, anyway, I could go on and on, but I wanna hear what Caitlin has to say. <laughs> Jen, I think you could give a masterclass on voice here, quite frankly. Um, it, it, to, to make the idea of voice in terms of the, the character's voice, because because there's there's character voice, but there's also visual voice. What what you choose, what the character chooses to notice and describe, what what the author chooses to have affect the character is also part of the voice. Voice is more than just the speaking voice, and I think that's what gums people up a little bit. Um, but when it comes to speaking voice, I always think if I were in a really crowded room, could I hear Liliana? Would I know that that's her speaking? Because that would make her have a singular voice. She doesn't sound like all the dead white men. Um, she doesn't sound like 12 other girls. That could only be Liliana. She would only have that pout in her voice because she's complaining because they don't have the right kind of whatever on the buffet table. That's not even a scene from the book, but that's where I go in my head. Um, and But it's, it's something that it's either there or it's not. Um, and when it's there, I it makes it easy to then do what Jen so grace, graciously um, complimented me on. It's, it's, it's not any great skill. It's me following like a puppy dog, this wonderful voice that the author has set up. And so when the voice tips a little bit, that's where I sense the author coming in, trying to usually insert some kind of a little message. Um, and, it's not necessary because the voice is already so strong that I'm going to follow that voice and through the lens of the character, I'll get what is needed to be said. And the author doesn't need to be there worrying about that. They need to be confident in their voice to do what, what they want to do within the story without the author themselves inserting them to help guide. Oh my goodness. Gems upon gems upon gems. I'm just going to like, reiterate just a couple things because my mind is just blown here. Um, so some of the takeaways from the chat is, I love when you said, when Liliana, the main character took the mic, she did not let go. Beautiful way to describe voice, yes. And another like powerful um, is voice is more than just character. Voice is also what the character chooses to see and notice. Like literally like my mind just like whoosh, blown. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just, so <laughs> I, another thing that I, I personally loved is stop trying to write like, an, like a dead white guy, right? Like, <laughs> um, write unapologetically yeah. like from that heart, like from that soul. Um, yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yes. I see this question from Daniela. Um, could you say a little bit more on how you learn to mute that negativity? Because that was the other thing that you said, right? You muted the imposter syndrome. How do you do that? Yeah. Um, it's ongoing. Certainly. I, I'm, it's normal, I think. And 
it comes from so much um, social and historical um, conditioning. So it's not our fault. It's it's how it is right now. And we can work to change that through what we're doing, which is sharing stories, right? But I will say that um, I took a class at a conference called VONA, the Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation. Um, it was at the time, one of the only writers of color conferences in the country. And I, I studied fiction with Juno Diaz for several summers. And he starts his classes the, the same way every time. And what he does is before we workshop stories, before we even talk about craft, he has us write a letter to our critical selves. And it's really powerful. It's really powerful. And his message, um, in short, is sort of like, I can we can talk craft till we're blue in the face, right? For days, it could be a summer long workshop, whatever. But until you start to learn to mute that critical voice, um, it's it's just going to be constantly uphill. And so we talked about strategies and, and, and writing these letters and people read them out loud and we were crying and it was really intense. But I know, I think about that often. So the other thing I try to do to mute the negativity is my writing space at home, which is very messy. I would never show you. <laughs> it's like, I'm not gonna turn this an inch. Um, I have pictures, I have quotes, I have letters that students, readers have shared with me. And I just have them all like collage, like on the wall. And so when I come into this space, I just feel like held, you know, I feel like there's this kind of, um, yeah, like a, a shawl around me of just positivity, like go, go, go. Like we, we need your stories. We need these characters. We need these books. And I will also say that coffee helps. Caitlin and I love Starbucks. We bonded off that like right away. And chocolate, like do what you got to do, especially when you're on deadline. I had a, a deadline recently and I just was like all about the coffee and chocolate. But <laughs> I'm glad you like the explanation, Elizabeth. Yep. Yes. I'm like getting teary eyed here. Like, oh my God. like hearing that, like I love the held part. Like my, yeah. I would never show my office either. Like everyone just sees the bookshelf because that's the part that looks cute yep. and organized. But like the rest of the room, like. It looks like Hurricane Katrina came in. Hurricane like, But it's just like, I, I, it just resonated with me a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so we talked a little bit about what resonates, which is like strong voice for you, Caitlin. Are there any other things that you look for in your submission inbox? I... I, it, sometimes it's easier to say what I'm not looking for, um, but what, what I look for is people, writers who aren't afraid to play with language, who aren't afraid to break what some people consider the, 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 the standard setup of a story, um, who take chances in their writing and in what they're writing about. Um, I, I, the phrase push the envelope is, is far too overused these days. But when something is doing that, when something is pushing against the status quo, when something is, is redefining the way a character is introduced or a relationship, 
Um, that is something also I always take a lot of notice of because it means that this is someone brave and it's someone and someone brave is probably going to have a very good story and someone brave is probably also going to have more than one good story and that's also an important thing as an as an editor I, I don't want to publish one book I want to publish I want to create a career and to have a career you need more than one story and you can sometimes tell by what someone's writing about or what they're doing with the language that, that, that they are going far beyond that one book. I love that. And, and feel free to also answer the opposite of the question. Like, what do you not look for? Like, feel free to dro drop a couple gems that way as well. Um, I, I, gosh, now that I said that it's easier to answer that way, I can't think of a single thing. We're good, we're good. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. That's awesome. Um, so, um, Jen, can you share like what some key insights are that you haven't already mentioned? Because like you've been just dropping the tea, like just like <laughs> I feel like there's been like I can I can visualize Obama dropping his mic like ten times during this <laughs> conversation. But you have any other insights that you'd like to share with authors? Yes, I mean I I would say. Definitely don't take the rejection personally. Um, I know it's easy to say and hard to do because, of course, it, it stings, right, the rejection. But there there have been studies done, like uh, VIVA, the organization that, that studies um, uh, publication by gender in literary magazines, um, several years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, I know they came out with um, some findings that shared that when men are rejected or receive a rejection for a short story, a poem, an essay, they will immediately send out work again within 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, five different other journals. But women will not for six months in many cases. Um, and that's astounding, right? It's, it's, it's not the way it should be. So I think um, we really do have to have a little bit of um, objectivity or just remove ourselves from that. Like we pour everything into the art, but but have like a different cap on when you're submitting. Um, and the other thing, there's a quote by Stephen King in his book on writing, speaking of white men. <laughs> anyway, he shared that um, he writes with the door closed and publishes with the door open. So when you are writing, like it is just you and the page and the characters and your soul and all the things, right? But if you're, it, it's different writing in your journal versus writing for hopefully an audience of hundreds and thousands and millions of people. So that's why you publish with the door open. You really have to revise your work knowing that a reader is going to be experiencing it too. So I think that helps. And then um, someone mentioned it earlier, you know, reading, but I think reading like a writer is really key. So sometimes I'll type out passages from books that I love or, you know, I'll be reading. I'm like, wow, that's good. And how did the writer do that? I kind of try to lift the hood like a mechanic, like take apart the engine, like, okay, okay, that's how they got in. You know, I, I, I'm a nerd, I guess, in that way. I really like to study the craft of writing. And I think it... Um, it helps, it helps me build like muscle in my pen kind of thing, so. I love that. Anything to add, Caitlin? 
so you're on mute. Uh, uh, I we're good now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Um, when it comes to rejections, it's also, and I think this was covered by a few other people in the, in the past hour and a half, but there are so many reasons behind why a manuscript could be um, not taken. I literally sometimes have cried while I'm writing a rejection, literally because I love something so much, but either a colleague has something coming out that's too close, or I've just published something maybe not spot on similar, but similar enough, but it's beautiful and the piece is beautiful. And I know, and I, I am positive someone else will take it on. And sometimes I will, as someone else also said, tell a colleague or even colleagues at other publishing houses. Um, but if I think something's wonderful, I'll pass it along and say, hey, you might want to take a look at this. Um, but there are so many more reasons um, for why something's not taken than, may, than maybe just that the story wasn't strong enough. And that's what you need to remember as a writer, that the rejection isn't necessarily a rejection of your writing. It's, it's more that there isn't room for your writing at this current time. Um, and, and then when it comes to, uh, Jen, you had brought up the muscle, your muscle pen. And I, that made me think of, um, being open to revision. Um, some editors will ask to see a revision, maybe a first chapter or a whole revision. We don't do that very often. So if we do ask for it, it means that we really truly see a lot of potential in your work and, and take that very seriously because it doesn't, again, it doesn't happen often and we get so many things coming in, just, just dozens a week, that to take the time to write to someone to say, hey, I really like this, but would you consider trying this? Even if your instinct is to say, no, I wouldn't, try a page or two. Like, like Jen, when, the, when they suggested to you, would you try in first person? And it made all the difference. Um, try it because you're not gonna lose. You've tried, a, you've tried something new that might not work, but you haven't lost anything. You've learned something that you might not have thought to do before. I love that. And on that note, like my first book that's coming out, Platanos Are Love, I got three R&Rs for it. And I was like over the moon excited and I did all three because to me, I saw it as just like an exercise in and like honing my editing craft. So if you get R&Rs, love it, go it, do it, try it. And I mean, I think editors are editors for a reason, right? Like their, their feedback, like just like oh. blows my mind every time. And I literally wrote three different versions of the manuscript, all of which I love, but the final end product was like, okay, so this is what I'm, I'm cool with sharing with the world. Right. So yeah, yeah. I mean, writing is editing. So, so many gems here. We have three more minutes. So I just want, to give Jen. Can you talk a little bit about your upcoming book, Maya? Yes. Oh, I'm so excited um, to talk about this book. This book, oh, is everything. Um, it, it tells the story of 16-year-old Maya, and she lives in Guatemala City. So the book takes place in Guatemala, and it's just talk about the book you needed as a, as a young person. Um, she is an aspiring fashion designer. She's actually into trashin, which is a fashion made from recycled materials. Super cool. And she is hanging out, loves her life with her friend, her mom, her boyfriend, 
and she gets caught up in the prickly net of a local gang, uh, the Maras, and she and her mother have to flee in the dead of night um, to escape some uh, violence, and they they make it to the Mexico-U.S. border. And I think I'll stop sharing the synopsis there because I'm new at, at talking about this book, and I don't want to give away the action. But um, but this I'm I'm really excited for this book. Um, and and Caitlin, oh my God, I can't believe it's happening. And so. You will meet her very soon, um, August 2022. And I think this is also a good time for us to have a fun announcement. Ah, I know. Um, Caitlin and I, we have so we have another YA novel after Maya. Um, and then we we just signed um or have a contract for two picture books that um yeah, I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled. Um and the first picture book um, is called So Many Gifts, and it tells the story of two cousins, primos, um, with the same name, well, it's Sammy and Samuel. One is in Massachusetts, one is in Guatemala. They meet for the first time um, when Sammy goes to visit Guatemala for the first time. And um, the second is a picture book biography of Nobel Peace Prize winner, Rigoberta Menchu, um, who was a, um, as you know, a, a strong activist during the, the civil war and genocide in, in Guatemala. So I am just thrilled to be working with Caitlin DeLouis on five books. Somebody pinch me, I can't even. I can't even. Okay guys, like seriously, like, check out the chat. Like congrats, congrats, congrats. Like it's blowing up the chat, justifiably so. I mean, if for no other reason, you guys have to tune in to the rest of the Latinx Kid Lit Festival videos because, like, you get to hear it first. Like, <laughs> like if nothing else, other than, like, I mean, we've gotten so many gems. Like, I'm going to rewatch this video over and over again, right? But that aside, like, we get the, like, VIP, like, announcements. Like, I'm, like, freaking out. I'm, I'm like, actually, like, sweating, and I don't usually sweat, but that's, like, how excited I am. <laughs> so cool congratulations 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 thank you marvelous oh. i mean like check out the chat this is this is great this is like the best news ever and what a great way to end our session thank you both so much for all of the knowledge and wisdom and like, like everything that you just dropped like seriously like again i just i'm just visualizing obama dropping the mic like 10 times during this whole conversation so um, thank you, and we are going to transition to the open Q&A with all of the authors, so we're going to bring everyone back. So if we missed your questions, um, I'm sorry, but this is the time to pop them back in the chat so we can address them now. And I also wanted to give a quick shout out to our chat moderators. You guys are amazing. You're on the ball. You have like links and resources. You you dropped the Quelly resource. You dropped the 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 study that Jen was talking about. Like you're on a whole nother level. So thank you, thank you, thank you for you know everything that you guys are doing. You're killing it. Um, and so now is the time when if there were other questions that you wanted to ask that didn't get addressed, pop them in now. And I did get a couple. So while we wait for some of the questions to come in, um, 
one of the questions that popped in was what is an r and r so sorry that was my fault i was using like industry lingo um r and r is basically like a revise it, it stands for revise and resubmit so usually at that stage your at your agent sends your work to a couple editors however big the selection is and then um at that point if there are editors that like yourself but they can't quite you know, bring it to the rest of their editorial team or to the acquisition team, they give you some feedback. Um, and I hear it's really common, especially for picture books, because before they invest, you know, the time and the energy, they want to make sure that you can exercise those editing muscles um, that Jen was referring to. So oftentimes, it's kind of like a bit of a test to see how you can handle feedback and how you're able to edit your work. So I highly encourage them if you get them either from agents or from from editors. I actually got an R&R from my agent and I did it. So do it, do it, whoever you get it from, I highly recommend them. All right, so now we're getting some questions. Um, so when a story idea pops into your head, is it in the form of a character, a setting or a scenario from Ines Lozano? So, Feel free to just like, we're going to like old school it so I can like MC a little, like just like raise your hand and just like, I'll be like, so we don't all talk at once. <laughs> if this question resonates with you, jump in. Yeah, go for it, JC. So you're on mute. There you go. I just noticed that. Sorry about that. Perfect. Um, I mentioned it a little bit in our conversation, um, but a scene always pops into my head first. That's, that's, I don't know why. And it's always the first scene and it creates such intrigue for me that I want to know what happens next and why are these characters visiting me? And so for example, there's a book that's coming out next year. Um, it's a young adult and, um, I can talk more about it later, but it, essentially I saw these two young lovers on a sailboat in the evening, looking at the stars and they're on their backs with their hands stretched out so close that their fingers are almost touching, but they can't quite reach each other. And that was it. Like, that's all I had. That was the whole thing. And, and it, you know, transpired into this entire novel that I've now written and um, done the first edits on. So, you know, I think it's whatever happens for you. And if next time it's something else for me, then I'll go with that. That's awesome. Oh man, anyone else chime in? The question is when a story idea pops into your heads, is it in the form of a of the character, a setting or a scenario? I think it's happened all th three ways. <laughs> Especially when you're writing picture books. <laughs> so um, yes, yes and yes. Ditto. Picture books for sure. All right. And then we have, I just started my middle grade novel last NaNoWriMo and have no idea what to do with it from here. I'd love to be published, but don't know where to start. And this is from Azita Thomas. Thank you so much for sharing that and your vulnerability. Um, and if anyone who wants to address this, can you talk a little bit about NaNoWriMo for those of us who don't know what that is? I think it's a great question. <laughs> and and I I just want to echo what you said, Alyssa. That you know, I appreciate that vulnerability. And I want to say congratulations to Azetha because 
to accomplish that is absolutely a feat and deserves all the celebration in the world. And I know a lot of people get that far and think, well, it's still not enough and they're on to the next goal. And I think that in this industry, we have to stop and celebrate every single milestone from finishing a chapter to finishing a book to getting representation to sell, you know, so on and so forth. So I just, I just want to say that I can't really speak to NaNoWriMo because I've never done NaNoWriMo because uh, it stresses me out. Um, <laughs> but I will say that there's a lot of resources and I, like Izet though, was in that place where I didn't know what to do with my first book. And I spent a lot of time on the floor in Barnes and Noble reading Publishers Marketplace and querying agents. And I just didn't know where to go. There's a lot online and a lot of agency websites provide resources. A lot of author websites provide resources. Um, I just really wanted to step in and applaud what she had done. Agreed. I've tried NaNoWriMo like three times and I've every time I just can't do it. So kudos, like that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, there are um, there are so many resources online and there are communities. I would say, again, also congratulations. And um, I think having a, a critique group or taking a workshop, um, you know, I, I there's Macondo, a writer's workshop. I'm teaching a YA um, week-long workshop for them this summer. There's also Tin House writer's workshops, YA. Um, Paraplus is a wonderful mentorship program, and there's another mentorship program. I know, Caitlin, you you are involved in it um, where you're working with um, someone who has, I think, a picture book manuscript or YA. And so there are these different programs. Coeli has a mentorship program. We Need Diverse Books has a mentorship program. Like, so try and get in there, but it and don't apply once, you know, apply for things like just constantly and widely, um, but when you workshop a part of your manuscript, your, your novel, um, understand that people are only getting maybe 25 pages of it and a synopsis. Um, and it, I think once you start getting feedback, it's important to understand like what feedback to listen to and what feedback to just kind of like say thanks, but no thanks. You know, so it's kind of like hard to figure that out um, while you're, you're getting your feet wet, but but you can definitely do it. And and it's just, it's really exciting. I'm happy for you. I love it. And I, I also wanted to kind of piggyback on some of the mentorship programs that you mentioned. You mentioned we need diverse books. There's also PB Chat. If you're specifically focusing on picture books, there's The Word, um, which they actually, it's a little bit different. Most of the mentorship programs that I had come across pair you up with an author. The word actually pairs you up with an editor, which was like crazy. And it's actually how I got one of my editors. So I highly encourage the word. Las Musas also has a mentorship program, Latinx and publishing. So just literally like writing mentorship, Google is your friend. Um, there's a ton out there because this is just like I will say it's one of the best industries in the whole wide world. And I've worked in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, all over the place. There's nothing like the, the kid lit space because the generosity of this space is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And authors, once like you guys have made it, I've never seen such an industry where you guys are willing to like give back. So I'll definitely apply for the mentorship programs. Um, another question, anyone else want to dive into that? No? Cool. 
All right, we have 10 minutes, so we're going to try to get to all the questions here. Um, Alejandra, do you ever think about how your books can be used in an educational context, or does that interfere with the creative process to have that agenda? That's a good question. I'll answer that one. Um, not while I'm writing, but certainly afterward. <laughs> I mean, it's it's in your mind, especially writing nonfiction. I'm working on a... a older picture book, younger middle grade nonfiction poetry book. That's, um, and I certainly knew when I even was interested in the subject that it would be something that schools <laughs> and educators would em hopefully embrace, but I don't let it into the creative process. Um, I, I work on the materials afterwards to help educators use it in the way that will most help them. Um, because I think that would be distracting to think, okay, well, I'm writing this spreadsheet. I mean, and I, I think I've said this, I probably said it three different times, but I'm always, I'm always writing for my kid reader. So. I love that. Anyone else want to take a stab at it? I hate that saying, but I just find myself saying. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to the next one. Karina Enrique, do you have any tips for an in-person pitch to agents? Ooh, Basse. Yes. I will jump Polly, on that one. Because um, I feel like this is so scary um, and authors should know that we know it's horrifying um, and we feel for you so deeply. And I feel like I usually go into these focused really on trying to get as much of a sense of that person in the time that we have together as I can, because I know they're probably, it feels fraught, it's nervous making. Um, and so I often, if it's something I'm gonna, if, if it's something I do, I will usually take a peek at some pages because pitching and writing are two different skill sets. Maybe you're amazing at one and dreadful at the other maybe the other way around. Um, and I don't wanna miss someone who's an amazing writer who's just flustered. Um, so I always try to reframe it for people as an opportunity to get some one-on-one -on -one questions answered too. Um, so not every agent is gonna take the same approach, of course, but I think as a general population, <laughs> we are at author advocates. And so our goal is to try to set people at ease, make it a, a rewarding and productive experience for you. Um, so do not hesitate to use the time with what you most need um, and to share a bit about your work in a sort of conversational way, the way that you would tell a friend over coffee um, in a way that makes it sound like something you'd want to read. I, I mean, that. what can you add to that? The Harley just said it perfectly, period, end of story. And I will say... My agent still has to help me with my pitches after like a manuscript is done and we're getting ready to submit it. It's really hard. I love that you said that pitching and writing are two different skills. And you have to practice. You're, you're not, you have to like say it do. out loud, like actually teach your mouth how to say the words, like the muscle memory, you know, actually practicing it and saying it out loud. Absolutely. And going back to those mentorship programs, I also think that's one thing that you can get out of it like maybe your writing is really strong but you're, you need some help with your pitch it's at least i find it easier to pitch other people's work than to pitch my own work so like 
that this is where like critique partners come in. This is where these mentorship programs come in. Um, because oftentimes, at least in my experience, it's so much easier for me to brag about someone else's work than it is about my own. So that that was great. That's the only tidbit I would add. I do think there is writing value in pitching because sometimes you will try to pitch something and then realize like, wait, this is really hard to talk about because I forgot to put in a conflict. Like, oh, this whole thing is just vibes, just vibes for days, no plots. Um, so sometimes when you're working on those pitches, you actually can discover new layers or things that you're like, oh, let me, uh, let me, let me tuck that in before I take it out on the town. So it's an opportunity. I'm on mute. I just realized that. Uh, <laughs> so instead of um, a mic drop, I'm giving you a pen drop right here because that was that was so perfect. Um, another question we have is, um, JC, as writers, we can write and rewrite until we turn blue. <laughs> when is the moment you know you're ready to share your work with Holly? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of rewriting and re I, I just think that's where the magic is, right? It's for me, it's not in the drafting, it's in the revision. Um, and typically I know that I can send her something when, I mean, I know her taste so well now that that's kind of a tough question. Um, so I know what she's going to vibe with, but I get it to where I just feel like I need her input now, that I, I can't do much more with it without her um, suggestions and opinions and, you know, hey, have you tried this? So, so generally it's when I just can't do any more with it. But I will say that we have to be really careful. I think sometimes we can revise ad nauseum because we're afraid and we don't wanna face the fear of actually sharing our work. And I think, you know, being okay with that fear, pulling up a chair for it, it can sit with you, but it doesn't get to rule your life is really what I go by. And, um, and so, but, but always, always take heart. You know, there's nothing, I think a lot of writers I talk to will say things like, I've had to revise this, you know, 15 times. And that means I'm a bad writer. And I say, no, trust me, it doesn't. If you knew how many times <laughs> I've revised a scene or chapter or dialogue or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm sure everyone here can attest to that. So, yeah. Love that. So as a Puerto Rican born and raised outside of the island, I'd never felt Latina enough. Do you ever struggle with self-identification as a Latina author? I'll jump in on that one. That's a deep, yeah, go, go for it. <laughs> um, I think we all probably have some feelings about this. You know, um, I'm mixed and sometimes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I struggle with that. What I've come around to is that um, I can write to my experience that I don't, I don't, I try not to shoulder that I have to represent. First of all, there's no way we're not a monolith. I can't represent every Latina perspective. And I certainly can't even represent every Puerto Rican's <laughs> perspective. I come to it with my own authenticity and that has to be enough. You know, of course I always do my homework and due diligence, especially when I'm, you know, writing nonfiction and I want to make sure I, a lot of family members come to my aid. <laughs> like if I'm, you know, 
reading for me. Um, but you know, I just try and, and represent my own authentic experience and come to that as honestly and rightly as I can. Um, but I hear you, you know, it, it can be daunting and, and I, I feel, I felt this question very much. <laughs> and Janet, it looked like you wanted to also say something. No, that's really well said. I mean, I, I completely agree um, that it, it can feel daunting to feel like you're representing an entire group of people. Um, and I just try to go like a mile deep, not a mile wide, you know, in, in all my work and just try to figure out like I'm, I'm telling one story at a time, um, one word at a time. And and I feel honored to do this work. You know, I feel like my parents are, are immigrants from Guatemala. They came to this country with all the hopes and dreams that lots of immigrants come to the country with. And we thought there would be many more generations before we had an artist, a, a working artist. Um, but I'm, I muscled my way through. Um, so um, I'm so grateful to to have this opportunity and, and to work with Caitlin, truly and to meet all of you here tonight and kick off this amazing festival. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank all of you. I mean, I, this this has been the most fun that I've had in like months, if that says anything, <laughs> this is so much fun. Um, thank you for attending panel, um, from Manuscript to Marketplace. Um, thank you for joining us for the first Latinx in Kid Lit um, Book Festival event. Please stay tuned for the rest of them. Thank you so much to our sponsor, the Authors Guild. Check out their website. And thank you for all of the amazing questions. You guys made my job easy. Um, this was great. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Besos. <laughs>